Welcome at the Coalface. I am Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world, beyond the headlines, and look for lessons learned that can inspire us. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and also consider visiting at buzzsprout.com and click on the support button and a shout out to our six current supporters thanks for helping covering our costs in this episode i speak with laurie charles laurie is a family therapist who has taken her expertise to regions in the throes of conflict violence and fragility countries where mental health concerns can be dire yet the resources available to help are rudimentary She's helped coach and train the people who support vulnerable groups and victims of gender-based violence in places like DRC, Burundi, Kosovo, Lebanon for Syrian refugees, among so many others. And actually our conversation made me realize the staggering amount of trauma left in the wake of conflict. We talk about her journey into becoming a therapist, the biases she's had to overcome, and the insights from the thousands of hours spent speaking to families. Hi, Laurie. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on to At The Coalface, our GMAP podcast. I'm really delighted that uh, you agreed to do this. We've never actually met. This is the first time we, we speak, and I'm really doubly happy that we can have an interesting conversation together and also get to get to know each other through, through this as well. Fabulous. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I'm so happy to be here and happy to meet you as well. And I was really drawn to your background and the area that, that is yours as um, profession professional expertise around psychotherapy, mental health, family therapy, family systems, um, and Part of it is also out of a personal interest where I have gone through my, my own journey in mental health and I'm really, really interested in this topic. And then I was struck by how you're combining um, this topic with also interventions and support for people who are in conflict zones. So the two topics together, uh, when I when I came across your, your name and your profile, I was like, I absolutely must reach out to Laurie and have a conversation. And if the podcast gives me this excuse, then so be it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk about, to talk about for me, what is everyday work. It's uh, things that are just um, things that I do, but um, the combination of where those things happen and why they happen where they happen you know, that's, I think that's GMAP that, that helped me combine those things and pull it, pull it together in a way that uh, made sense to me. And it sort of synthesized my, my actions and the way I think about what I do. You've participated in, in a number of podcasts as well and interviews. Uh, I, could, I could come across quite a bit of material that, that is already out there. And so what, what I was thinking for this conversation is to, to talk about two things. One is your expertise area and the other is yourself like your journey how you got into this and what are some of the learnings that you take away and so one place to start which i often do with podcast episodes is because i'm particularly interested in in how we 
become who we become is if you don't mind taking you on a um, time travel journey back to your childhood i would love to know a little bit what was your childhood like what was this early life what were you talking about at the dinner table and what early life experiences may have played a role in influencing the the direction that you decided to take Mm. wow great question um I live in Massachusetts. I live in New England, but I'm from Texas. I grew up in South Texas, actually. I have several siblings, three siblings. I'm the oldest. And uh, we grew up moving. I think I counted before I graduated high school, I moved 14 times. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. uh, Due to my, uh, one of my parents, my father's work uh, assignments. And so one thing that has uh, been a thread for me. I think, I think um, because of that is mobility. It's kind of ironic. Uh, I remember one school I went to, I was a teenager and um, I might've been at that school for a year. And, you know, the, I remember consciously thinking how, how to make friends because I might won't be here in a year. And, you know, I, I, I developmentally, that's probably appropriate, right? For the age but that, that stuck, and I was actually very fortunate. Um, my high school, I went to high school in San Antonio, and it was the first school that I, I didn't leave the school. I went from, in the U.S., from ninth grade to 12th grade. And so that was a, a kind of stability that I hadn't experienced before, I, especially with the, not just my group of, of friends and the student body, but I was able to get involved in activities. I had uh, teachers who were very engaged in, in, uh, in my life. I became like a student body president as a result of like getting involved in activities. So a part of me was able to bloom in a way that um, hadn't happened before. Um, you mentioned, so that was, that's important to point out. So my, my uh, background also, you mentioned the dinner table. I actually, I remember um, after I graduated high school, I went to college for a year, but I had uh, experienced in high school um, a traveling singing group that came to my school. (laughs) And um, they were a group that traveled around for a year and it was a cast of about a hundred people from multiple countries and we all thought it was fabulous. So I applied for it uh, just because that's what we all did. And a year and a half later, I was accepted. And I didn't think I would do this. Who can leave college? And I, that's what I did. I left college for a year to travel wow. in the singing group. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, so that I remember I mentioned that because of the dinner table uh, um, comment that you, you made. I, I didn't grow up having dinner in, with my family one, at one time of the day when everybody was present. And that was the first time when I was in the singing group, we had staging in Arizona and I lived with the host family for six weeks while we learned the show and we, we practiced uh, how to perform. And because this was a professional show that we would carry around to different cities and countries um, that how they did dinner. And I had never experienced that. Now that was, you know, I was, uh, I think 18, I was young. On the one hand, wow, my parents, I can't believe they let me do that. They had no reason to let me go. I mean, I'm not a singer. I'm not a dancer. I became a singer. I became a dancer. Um, it was more for the cross-cultural experience. 
So, you know, I applaud. I Today I'm still struck at, at how they were able to, to let me do that. And it was a very successful experience. It was a beautiful experience for me. Wow, I can I can imagine, and I'm trying to imagine also as you said your your parents' support, um, the, the trust they had in you, uh, the the time the, the time that you took away from from schooling. So this clearly is something really magical that uh, that happened there. Yeah, you know, I probably should think about that some more because um, it's I I could I don't even know if I could do such a thing, and it's pretty radical. Like you let your your adult child take off a year of school and to do this this thing that she doesn't even <laughs> just, you know, doesn't even really. It's like, not like you, you'd she, shown a gift in, in an area and they were exactly. nurturing that gift. It was like exactly. crazy, crazy idea. Yeah. It's a crazy idea. She wants to go away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was, I, there were plenty of questions certainly. And, um, but I had a lot of support. And what I remember is the support. And I find it interesting. You, you talk about this uh, exposure you had to other families. So being li- living in uh, other families and then noticing how they have dinner and um, I, I actually, I, re- I remember the first time this happened to me where we were, my brother and I were allowed to, or, or, or taken care of by the neighbor's family for, we were very young. It was for lunch only, like a few hours. And I, I already felt very strange to be in, in, a, in a different family environment. And at some point before we started having dinner or lunch, the, uh, they, they engaged in, in a prayer. And I had never experienced uh, praying before having a meal and i remember my my brother almost bursting out laughing because he thought it was so weird and i was so embarrassed so awkward so that was my my first touch so that story comes back but really keen to to find out more about how how that changed you because of course you work in family systems now so was did that plant a seed or a curiosity about what what are some of the different ways that people normalize what family is about I think it must have, right? Talking to you now, it's like, how can that not be, <laughs> not be influential? At the time, what was striking to me that I was able to be aware of was just how, I mean, it seems very trite to say it, but but um, this was in the 80s. So this was like during uh, the years of uh, Reagan presidency in the United States. And I remember there was still in East Germany. Um, I was, you know, we, we, we went to the, the GDZ, we were at the border. And I, you know, meeting families and learning about their experience within the context of their their governance, their state, was very profound. As an American, that was my first time abroad. I mean, I, I now I think, gosh, it was I wasn't I was 18 before I left the country, but but I'm very grateful today because I, thank goodness I was 18 when I left the country, and I really got to see not just the way families are different, but but um, how how larger events inform the way families work together or, or not, and the things that concern them. Uh, I didn't think about uh, income of a state, and certainly not that, but, and, or income of families even, but it was hard not to notice the, the different things families had, um, the material possessions and the things that they did for a living. I remember staying with single mothers in Germany and incredibly wealthy families in Scandinavia. I mean, now I can put words and a frame around that, but at the time it was just the, 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 the radical differences that were like, that really, that really, really struck me. Just one last question on this. So did you feel equally comfortable everywhere? I did actually. I did. That was probably a uh, naivete actually. 
And I also, I mean, we, I was traveling in a group, there were a hundred of us, uh, and we traveled, um, you know, we traveled in buses everywhere and we traveled together the whole year. So I made some very, very dear friends that I'm still friends with today, but yes, I, I did. I'm also, so your viewer, your listeners are, are not viewing this, but I'm a Latina and I, I have a, I remember somebody in GMAP told me, ah, I mean, this was kind of an interesting thing that this person said that I had a kind of a look that could fit in lots of places. Maybe less so in Scandinavia. I don't know. But. Yes, yes. Then I, then I became, a, you know, the exotic other, <laughs> which was fine, which was fine because I was 18. I thought that was super. And the other thing that struck me, I mean, I should say this because I smile when I think of these these uh, experiences. Um, wow, just how, 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 how intimate and lovely uh, people can be, even to, stra- to strangers, people they don't know. Very powerful. So, what happened next? Like, how did you go from singing and dancing to oh. psychos, psycho, <laughs> psychotherapy? Ah, uh, good question. Um, I didn't, I didn't know that's what I was going to do, and and uh, I did. I had to. I came back to school in San Antonio, and I eventually graduated. It, I took uh, it took a year and a half out of my you know college career, but it was certainly worth it. And I remember I was really com- uh, being confused or not sure as you might be about what I should do. I was studying French um, and um, that, you know, that I, I liked the linguistic part. I also went to a Catholic school, a very, uh, a Marianist Catholic school. Uh, even though I'm not very religious, the, the, the education at that university was so, um, I don't know, it was also very, it was very intimate and very powerful and, important for my development. Um, and I had an advisor who talked to me about joining the State Department, actually, um, which I thought that sounded so cool. Um, but somehow I ended up with a degree in psychology and I got hooked enough to want to understand better. Well, I also knew I couldn't do much with that degree. I needed to do another a graduate degree. And there was another uh, school nearby that I took my graduate degree at. Um, and that's the place I really got hooked into the work I do today. So that was Our Lady the Lake University, uh, where I got my graduate degree in family therapy, my first one. And uh, that was, I mean, that was also life changing. The, the the kind of training, the uh, certainly the coursework, but like the, the teachers and the mentors and now colleagues of mine, those who are still living, they're colleagues, and I've worked with them. It's so that they just, I don't know, they they did something to that with that curiosity that made me a think about how to apply a kind of uh, work with the family that was in trouble or suffering or needed something. And they, they, it wasn't just the courses. I mean, something very unique about, I think, family systems training is the, the practice part. So I spent, uh, I spent about two years, maybe three, just doing uh, kind of internship work, essentially apprenticeship and internship. And um one thing that's unique about that, I think you know, most professions in family systems or psychotherapy have a kind of a component like that. But at the time, um, I had to have a certain number of hours in the room, we would say, with families, 500 hours, which takes a long, that's equivalent of a full-time job in a year. And then a chunk of those hours, uh, so that's just in the room, a chunk would have to be, uh, I'd have to, someone would have to watch me do it. A supervisor would have to watch me through a mirror, one-way mirror, and uh, with a, a way to communicate with me about how to adapt what I was doing. So that kind of real-time 
uh, real-time interventions for many, many hours. It, uh, I still, I mean, now nobody watches me do therapy today, but it's as if I have a, I have a, a team observing what I do. It built a kind of consciousness in, in the work I do. So how did you get into that family therapy uh, school? Like, was it, it, it sounded like it happened almost by, by accident or and then you discovered that, wow, this is really what you want to not just use as, a, as an interesting topic, but actually practice. It became, oh, it's, it's totally like my metier and it's like, yeah. it's, it's how I identify myself. When you ask me what I, I mean, I'm a family therapist. That's what I, that's, so I think, okay, the, the, at, at the lake, at Our Lady of the Lake, I just, I, I was very lucky because the people I ended up getting trained by were very, at the time, I, I didn't think about this, but now I can say it historically, they were so um, uh, famous for what they were doing. And they were really pioneering in what they were doing. And, um, you know, very simple things like how to talk to an entire family in a way that everybody felt like you were on their side in the family. And that usually doesn't happen. There might be one person that feels blamed or someone else that uh, thinks I don't belong here. But somehow in the techniques we learned and the way that the our, our teachers, my teachers, um, helped us uh, get to that place where a family felt connected to us, not just one of them, but all of them, despite their differences between uh, and, and what they believed or what they wanted from the time together. That was very powerful. And they, I wanted more of it. So I also took a very long time to do my graduate degree. My first one, I took six years to do it because I was working full time. I'd love to do a parenthesis here. And maybe if you could share a bit what family systems and family therapy is, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners not familiar with. Um, so how would you define that? No, that's a, thank you. That's a good um, sidebar. So family, you know, working with families in a psychotherapy um, environment can look very different depending on what's happening or where you are on the globe, how you've been trained. But a family systems approach is a, it's a combination of um, systems ideas systems theory that encompass uh, disciplines, you know, from computer programming to um, biology, and were applied to uh, psychotherapy after World War II, and developed into this, um, this sort of field that at the time, or in the early days, was an antithesis to an individual sort of psychodynamic approach. But today, a family systems approach, I mean, it, it's, it means the same thing which is to how, how do you work with the family who presents to you for some um, psychosocial support issue or mental health issue in, in, inside their system in a way that is looking at the interaction between them such that the, there's a reduction in symptoms if there are symptoms for one particular member or if, that there's a reduction in conflict that's happening between and it's essentially it's working with the family as a system. So this is a, a challenge because in psychotherapy, we're used to one person or a couple being the unit of analysis, so to speak. Family systems work is, is, a, is a family as a unit. And because everybody defines family differently, we think about it more as, well, who's the system for this person? So the family can be, it can be blood kin. It, for a lot of people, it's not blood kin. Uh, sometimes people come in and the system that they're engaged with, that they're having challenges might be in a workplace 
does family therapy does it sit uh, in addition to individual therapy or is it a, a parallel approach because i'm trying to think about family dynamics that i can imagine where you you, you might have i don't know a, a uh, the family father that may have issues with expressing and dealing with emotions and maybe be partially violent. You might, you might have the mother who's depressive uh, and maybe kind of wants kids to, to um, uh, be co-responsible for, for, for all that that's going on. So how do you maybe split up what is kind of maybe behavioral patterns or individual psychological issues? How do you separate that from what is actually a, uh, a, a self-reinforcing family dynamic yeah. like or do you need both approaches it's funny because i mean just i'm talking about this almost all the time and just yesterday every training i do actually there's a question that comes up around like that like what do mm. we do with is individual therapy relevant and how is it relevant and so i mean it's like yes yes and yes i mean there are situations where it might be that somebody in the family would benefit from a, a specialized care or a, or sessions alone to talk about this or that you some often when there's secrets in a family which is almost always <laughs> talking <laughs> with people individually sometimes I mean there's so many situations so I just yesterday I was talking about this with a group I'm, I'm working with that how do we set up right away with a family when we meet them the idea that in future it may be that I want to talk with you alone or talk with your kids alone, and would that be okay? And I'll be sure to let you know. So, so because it is a, it is likely a possibility, and because people are always changing, and and, and situations are always changing, we want to set it up so that we that that's possible. But still, I would be looking at it from a family systems approach. So, if a father had a, a recurring pattern that wasn't helpful within the family, and say that's what they decided, or he decided he wanted to work on, or to change the family is such a great way to know uh, if he's changing. And, you know, and I, you know, there's so many opportunities for questions there. If he would agree and I, you know, ask the family, like, what is it about your dad that you think is most, uh, most difficult for you? And when does that happen? And can you show me, what does it look like? Can you describe to me? And then to hear from everybody, because people, uh, people in life, but in this case, families, they see every phenomenon differently. They see it differently. They have, a different perspective. So that is so valuable for for me to hear hear that descriptions and it's also I think sometimes even more valuable for the family members to hear each other. And it may be the first time that they the dad has heard um, that his teenage son has has noticed this. Uh, and that, you know, just that in itself, you see, can be so powerful. You, you must be sitting on an incredible wealth of experience of having spent so many hundreds, possibly thousands of hours now uh, engaging with all kinds of different families. Are there one or two messages that you, you, you think you can share with maybe families about how can they, without seeking a therapist, are there some practices that are helpful? Because I, I was reflecting on my, my own upbringing and and yes we had quite a lot of heartfelt conversations and things like this about all kinds of topics we rarely had um, safe 
spaces to give feedback to each other, for example, about how we come across and all of that. So it sounds like you create that space through therapy, but in, in, a, in a way, it sounds like really good ideas for all families to do, to, to think about that. So I guess my question is, what are a couple of pieces of advice that you might have to, for regular families about how can they do their own therapy first? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's such a great question. I love that. No one's ever asked me a question like that. Yes, I, I do think, I mean, it's, it's an interesting um, question because I also think about my own like immediate family and extended family and how just this work uh, has changed the way I, you know, my, my, to my tolerance level and my patience because it's very, it's very humbling to experience how differently people look at, look at something you're looking at and can describe it totally differently. I think that's very humbling. I mean, it's something that I learn again every day. And, and I do less therapy now than I do training for people who are doing this kind of, kind of work. But I think, you know, we, it's very useful to have families do homework. I, I would call it homework. And this is the kind of intervention. So say we, this family we made up in the podcast had this experience, aha moment in the session with me. It's wonderful if they've had it, but that's usually an artificial environment, right? I wanted to, how do we recreate this at home? And I will send the family off to do, uh, usually in activity, there's something that I would attach besides talking to the homework. So if you've got, you know, if you, you've gotten to know the folks in the room in front of you and there's something, say that, you know, the t there's a teenager who likes to use, uh, skateboard um, or the, uh, uh, a daughter who likes to uh, dance, you know, or do ballet or something, try to incorporate something I've learned about the family in the homework that I do. And give them, you know, we, this is also pulled from our, our theory and our, our training, but I think it's useful across the board, like to do something once a week, if not once a day, but once these families are so busy, once a week, one hour that you all agree on to do. And often if they have a challenge with a, a psychosocial issue in the family, I often instruct them to not talk about it. Not, this is not the hour to talk about that. This is the hour to have. Uh, time watching your son do his boarding or to go to you know a recital uh, or to go to a film together or eat a meal together back to the dinner table so I think at, at doing activities I mean it seems very simple but gosh now it's really difficult because families are so busy and pulled in so many directions to do one thing together as a group once a, you know once a week but you know I, there's some de design to it but that's something I think that would benefit. I mean, it's beneficial, I think, across the board. I like this thing you said about like listening and safe space, but that's very hard to dictate. A few families I know, they do like family council, but it always gave me the impression it was very dominated by the head of the family and it was very much his own terms. Um, and so I, I, I couldn't quite see how, how, how the rest of the family had this, the psychological safety to then, to then grow in that space. Yeah, I mean, and, that, and that, that's, um, you know, in a lot of the situations where I work or where I'm training folks where they work in humanitarian settings, I mean, there's very good reasons, right, that they're kind of sometimes very hierarchical or very structured roles in a family. And certainly crisis makes roles very um, structured in a family or a system. But that's a good point. And a good homework would be each person in the family has to design for a month, has to design the activity. So if we had four people, like one week it's son, one the daughter, one the mom, you know, and then to come back and shape that and see how, see what they did. Families have amazing solutions, quite frankly. They, they, when I sent a family off to do something 
and they're like, oh, we, Laurie, we didn't really do that. Uh, I, I never asked why. I asked, what did you do? Because they always do something. They do something. And uh, that is like, oh, that's, a, that's like this kind of wisdom that a family system has if there's a place for it to, to bloom. And I'd like, if you don't mind, moving the conversation to the, the key area that you've been working on in, in terms of bringing family systems and family therapy to people in really dire straits, in humanitarian situations, in conflict zones. I'd, I'd love if you could share how you got into that space and then some of the uh, kind of insights and learnings that you've, you've built in that, because it sounds like such an important topic that has quite little attention when we think about humanitarian intervention. We talk about shelter or, or uh, settlements, but almost nobody talks about m- mental health for refugees it seems like mental health is the domain of um uh, privileged people (laughs) white collar and and, uh, you and i but but not not for those refugee types yeah you know that's a that's i think that the more that we do around messaging to help um reduce the that idea i mean Mm. there's also stigma right across the board around um around mental health or mental ill health but there, you know, there's much more attention than there was before the pandemic, for example. But there's always more to do. So it's, you know, we're, I think, in between. How did I, so I got started, you know, I back, this kind of goes back to my life story a little bit. Um, when I finally did get my PhD, um, I left uh, the path I was supposed to take to become an academic in my field. I left it to join the Peace Corps in the US. So I became a volunteer in uh, West Africa for a year and a half. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to solidify uh, foreign language French in this case. I wanted, so I, that was a goal. I also wanted to take a physical break or a break that was not about my dissertation, was not about family therapy, was not about training, was just about uh, adapting and learning to a, a new place. And, you know, when I finished that, I did come back and I started an academic career, but within a year I was very um, antsy and I, I uh, antsy for like travel and uh, to do something um, outside the, the, the borders of where I was living. So I ended up with the support of a colleague who became later became a friend, somebody I didn't know uh, well, except it, in the, his scholarship. I went to the Philippines and taught at a university in Manila for a summer. And that was the first time that I, I mean, that was a, a total cold um, call and uh, a network that I was lucked into and had a great experience. So that was my first, I mean, I had already been in West Africa and I traveled in this global singing group, but that was like, I lived in Manila, you know, and I, I became part of a department. And uh, I taught classes to not just, uh, you know, Filipinos, but because of, of the, you know, geolocation, right? The, the people all around the region who came to school uh, to learn psychology or family systems in this case. And I think that experience plus the background of having the academic um, credentials, later also the French became critical. So within a few years, I was working in the Congo. I was working in Burundi. I uh, worked in Cairo. Um, I started. I started to travel more, um, doing uh, work in 
I mean, it, it became cri not crisis oriented because the Philippines was a very different kind of experience than like the Congo. But I remember I asking questions after that. You know, why is it so different? Why could I spend three months in the Philippines and and here I can I'm only here for a week and I have to do it this way with these resources? I didn't have answers to those questions. I mean, that eventually led me to GMAP, but it really I, I wouldn't say it bothered me, but I noticed it. So you noticed, help me understand, please. So you noticed differences in what exactly, actually? Resource, well, resources, funding, yeah. money. Funding, money, true. okay. Right, yeah. Right. And, you know, the attention to mental, the attention to capacity building, let's say, for people to do mental health and psychosocial support was clear. But what wasn't clear to me is like, how could I, I mean, how could it be that me showing up here meant three months and teaching classes in a university that, you know, was fully attended. And then here, you know, in this country, in East Africa, um, you know, this is like so radically different. Absolutely not a university setting. And most low and middle income countries, that's not a given. So you, you were parachuted into Congo to teach family therapy. Well, I was, I was brought in as a consultant for that project and the, the, so I was, I always operate as a family systems person, but I was brought not to do training. I was brought to design some programming for, it was actually two countries, but the Congo project was around women who'd experienced uh, gender-based violence after the most recent war at that time. So I'm also a qualitative researcher. So I was able to do um, a, a rapid with their the organization support, rapid needs assessment in this part of the Congo, and which meant meeting women who had experienced uh, gender-based violence, but also had created think, something they call the listening house, uh, Maison d'Ecoute. I, I mean, they had come up with, it, I thought, was just incredibly innovative um, solutions with the limited resources they had. But this organization I was uh, sent by had more funding. So that was the purpose of my visit, was to determine how to best use that funding. And almost always it's involving to a, a training of some sort um, that now is almost strictly family systems training. But at that time, you know, working with uh, trauma, women who'd been, uh, you know, violated. It's a very, you know, things that happen in humanitarian settings and in conflict and everywhere, of course. Are you able to share a bit more about that experience in, in Congo, dealing with women who've gone through trauma? Like how, how do you, in, in how do you approach that? How do you um, how do you make a difference in 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 such a such a setting? Uh, just curious how, how you felt when you when you arrived there. Oh gosh, um, you know, I still I think about that experience because um, the Congo and that part of the Congo is like it's just so complex and an amazing place to be. Um, but it was really, it was physically, even though I couldn't, I lived in West Africa in a, a village in the bush. I had people around me and I lived by myself, but I had people I knew. I was safe. I had a place to get my potable water. And I, and where I was, even with my colleague in the Congo, um, we didn't have, we didn't have any of that. So um, it was um, a challenging um this is the one project I could say I, I travel with those uh, nutrition bars, not so much, not everywhere, but that's all I ate for three days. I think I one for lunch, one for dinner, one for breakfast. 
I mean, there was just we weren't in a place where, I mean, the the, the resources were so limited, and by resources I mean food, food and water, and so you know when that imagine for me like imagine that is how that's that's not just me the consultant that is what's happening here, that is the people struggling every day with um, having you know total water is food insecurity to put it mildly right. So that's one thing that helps is like, wow, here's a picture A very, I'm still, you know, I'm still quite safe. Right. But this is the, the setting. And then on top of that, the risk to families, the risk to women, the risk to children, whatever it is that might be. And, you know, that was an early experience for me. So early in my career, before I worked in the middle, you know, in the MENA region, um, where, and, and even today, I mean, this, these issues are just so prevalent, like, the people, the vulnerability of certain populations, depending on the larger context, and like how how do you help support people's well-being when you know in this case their well-being had to do with the women who had been violated in the past that was important to them. So the the food they and water that was something they weren't asking us for help with that. That was something that they were you know they they were dealing with. They knew how to deal with, or they were getting support from other um, areas. But working with women was something that they didn't, um, you know, they, they needed help with. So I remember in that, your other, the other part of your question, um, I just remembered when I met the women. So we traveled around to see what uh, two or three of them had been doing. And in this part of Congo, they had previously been funded for a similar project. And that happens also in so many countries. I didn't know this at the time. And now it's so clear, like not just the funding stream, but like how it stops. And it picks up again and it stops and it picks up again. Uh, you know, and so the continuity was, you know, the people are, are there and they're such a resource, but the continuity of the funding and the support is so, so challenging. Um, nevertheless, they, they, uh, they asked for training around how to work with these women. And so for me to learn what they were doing, I asked them to do a role play. We were in a village at one of these days on Deku. And I remember, um, you know, that the, so these are folks who are, uh, we would say maybe paraprofessionals. They don't have college degrees. They may not have graduated from lycée or, or college even, you know, they, they're limited education compared to the typical, right, uh, family systems um, person. But that's, that doesn't mean that they can't do the job. It's a matter of training and, and also mindset. So um, I remember them in this role play, uh, watching what, um, how the, the cultural values around how to talk to women or stigma around violation of a woman were so much more obvious and um, challenging to not to deal with than the skills. And family systems work, I don't know, so that the message from that was like, you, you have, you know, things that are stigmatizing that affect people's health like I mean to put it mildly health your physical health and your mental health um, violence um, how it raises the, like the most important like value uh, questions about values and ethics uh, for each person whether it's me or you or the you know psychosocial trainee in the Congo so that has to be incorporated in the it has to be incorporated somehow in any training around an intervention it has to be addressed. It has to be back to the open the space for it. 
because I can, I can train someone to do a perfect set of, you know, relational questions, but, but if they're talking to women in such a way that is perpetuating what the women might feel like as violence, you know, that's not helpful. Was it an issue with the adequacy of the tools or like, was it also trying to break a dynamic around stigma that was there like when a like a not such highly educated trainee was then engaging with somebody who'd been violated they they were bringing with them the 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 kind of looking down the stigma and all of that and it it was kind of it was not helpful from a healing standpoint is is that what you're uh, what you observed yes yes Uh, although i mean i i I, i'm thinking of trainees i've had you know, I've done trainings in many countries and I've uh, been an academic in multiple locations in the U.S. and outside the U.S. You know, I've, I've taught in Sri Lanka, I've taught in Cairo. Uh, so everybody brings their, uh, what is the word? They bring like their bag of rocks, like uh, the <laughs> Elaine Stritch said as a, a performer. And I can think about a recent training I had in the U.S. who discovered, uh, I trained to become a couples and family therapist that she would have to talk to couples about their sex life I mean she really had not expected that she would have to do that and um when she was confronted with that in her apprenticeship she couldn't do it and she she uh, so that is that is um you know she didn't finish the program she changed careers this is so um I think this is not relegated to the um you know if someone has a limited education or not it's Working with, you know, working in, in mental health and psychosocial support, but I think especially with families and especially in, in humanitarian or post-conflict settings where, I mean, these are some of the worst atrocities that can happen to people, happen. And the, they bring up that, all that work, it's so important to, to address and to focus on, but you have to be prepared for um, bias that this surprises you. Does it mean also that the training has to help uncover these biases as well? Yeah, I mean, we often find that like supervision, and I was working with a, a person there, a partner. So, so she, I mean, I wasn't responsible for this, but we noticed it. So we were like, okay, we can incorporate it in the training curriculum, uh, you know, talking just about stigma of sexual violence, for example, as a way to bring up values and discussion. But supervision and supervision support is what I would call it now, supervision support, because I'm, and for many places, I'm an expat living in the U.S. and I'm providing um, guidance, sometimes in the field directly, but I come back home to the U.S., a project goes on for another year or two years or three years, and I'm still providing support. And that's critical. So back to that, like I mentioned in the beginning, how my therapy was always watched I mean, you didn't ask me about all the mistakes I made when I was when I was learning, and all the times I was sort of like caught out many times, and how important that is because often we don't know it, we don't know the bias that we hold. So what 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 what's it, just to make it real for our listeners? What's a what's a mistake that that? that oh my that, gosh, it was such a I have a, such a good example, and I often shared it in training. Um, so I, I I grew up I'm Latina uh, I grew up in a Latina Latin Latin household even though you know my my it was my maternal great grandparents who immigrated from what was Mexico at the, or Mexico at the time so I don't have a, an immediate immigrant history but I grew up in a in a you know very Latin household and so I, when I started doing therapy and my 
best mentor, Douglas, was watching me. I was already a doctoral student to leave. I, I was already like, you know, thinking I was pretty hot stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I was working with a couple, a Latin couple. I think they were, I forget where they were from. This was in South Florida, but so they weren't from Texas. And I did not experience them as Latin, which is interesting also. But my, um, my supervisor who had been watching me told me, well, he, he gently inquired, <laughs> Have you noticed that you 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 for every question that you ask um, the wife, you ask the husband two or three? And I looked at him and I like kind of like like him. What really? What? Now I didn't believe him, even though I respected him, and I you know I was very naive. Uh, he was absolutely right. How did I know? We also videotaped all of our, videotaped every single session. And part of our work was to go and watch our videotapes. So uh, I watched it. And of course he was right. He was absolutely right. And I was shocked. Uh, there's so, I have so many examples like that. But that one was striking because I, I realized uh, I could not see. I mean, the family looked like, the couple looked like, not like my parents, but they were Latin. And that is how I grew up. That is how I grew up, not realizing you know, my mother was a, a, an amazing powerhouse of a woman, as many women are. But in that household, her voice was uh, relegated, you know, second. Mm. And isn't that something how I could carry? So carry that with me in the way I was doing the session. Loved, uh, I mean, now my supervisor at the time, he's my supervisor now. He's my friend and colleague, a dear, dear person to me. I've worked with him now 30 years. I've known him. But at the time, I still didn't believe him. <laughs> I had to see it for myself. And wow, that's, that's some pretty impressive stuff to watch yourself um, and see, like, did I really just say that? Uh, I, you know, I don't even know if the family, if the couple noticed it or not, but I never did it again. And of course, the risk is that it skews the, um, does, it, does it give too much power to the, the male, like, because it, it, in all honesty, it doesn't sound like such a big deal to me uh, lis listening to to that. Ah, uh, like, okay, <laughs> okay. I can probably think of some more, some more bigger ones. But the the chat, okay. The the problem with that is that it we would say it replicates what's happening in the family. It just it's, so it's just more of the same. So you're that you can't really be helpful to a fan or a system if you're, you know, you. We talk about systems of having as having rules of their own that aren't so obvious. Sometimes they're very hidden. So when you, you know, like this young woman who asked this biased question of the in the role play in the Congo, she's just doing more of the same. And that's the reason people are coming to get support is to get out of that. So, so that risk for me is that I didn't help the couple at all, and worse that the wife didn't tell me. I mean, I don't know if she noticed it, but. So for me, that was, you know, it's just like, it was so, um, it was a, a profound, uh, a profound error. I'd like to jump, it's jumping around a little bit, but th there's one question I really wanted to ask you. It's like, what strikes me with quite a lot of the humanitarian crises that we are seeing today, the incredible impact they're having on families. I'm thinking of the conflict in the Ukraine and Russia, actually, for that, to that, uh, for that matter. Um, the enormous amount of migration that we've seen from from uh, from Syria and then from Afghanistan, and of course the um, tens or reaching hundreds of millions of people being displaced from uh, from the Sahel, and now we have all these awful stories coming out of Sudan, 
uh, with the um, the Arab groups that are slaughtering tribes and trying to target male males, uh, even new, newborns. And so, the the question I have is, what 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 is your assessment essentially of of are, are we is there a wave of families, women, children with deep psychological issues that somehow we, we, we need to we need to put a hot spotlight on um, another good question um, that the first you know the first gut response that comes to mind when I think about uh, gmap is um, your the, the experience of family is having it cannot be uh, it's not in a vacuum right it's the experience of what's happening in their community in their town or village in their country and the region of the world and the uh, the so i think that is always that's a constant right we can always expect that wherever we are right i i do think though if you look at it from a like what the 360 right you look at the global perspective and you consider the recent events of the last five years across the globe that um, I think it is possible to draw some pretty clear, clear lines around mm -hmm. well, what the effect of obviously the pandemic had on uh, governance in states and, and on the economies in countries, what effect the climate changes have had disproportionately across the globe. Um, the, 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 the wave of um, more uh, authoritarianism across many parts of the globe. So, uh, and all these things just at once in the last five years. I mean, so, so, it, and so in, my, in my GMAP mind and my family systems mind, wow, okay, this is, I don't want to say it's like the direct result, but you can see, you, this, is, this is how it looks. You know, when we imagine how families are doing, or we imagine what the effect of this, this is how it looks. And there it's, I mean, I work now with, a, I'm a consultant with an, an international humanitarian response organization. I've been working with them for a year. They're organizing across 27 countries, family systems interventions training. That's been the project we've been working on. It's been a wonderful project. But, and I work with five very um, skilled, capable, professional, exceptional um, folks. And they, they, I mean, they are on call. I mean, they are just busy. I mean, people think I'm busy and I travel a lot. And I always remind them, like, this is, no, no, this is what it looks like. 27 countries. And, and there's something every day. So, so families, I mean, uh, people are affected by these events in very across the board in different ways, depending on many factors. And those individuals are typically in families. They are in some kind of a family, and their family members are affected. Uh, they're they're killed. They're um, raped. They're lost. They've lost their livelihood. They've lost their homes. So many ways that people. It's like extreme adversity. So I mean, I I think, uh, but you know, what I keep keep my focus, and this is from learning uh, in the work that I did for a number of years with people in Syria during the middle of the part of the war how to keep a focus on developing skills so that services can be provided. How do you continue to develop skills for people to support people who are affected, themselves included? Because 
yeah, the people I work with are all, they're affected. I mean, they're, they are displaced and working with displaced people. They've lost family members to uh, bombs and they're working with family members. So this raises, it's, it's a very uh, profound kinds of training experiences and conversations with them. Thank you. Thank you, Laurie. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation and we, we have a little ritual um, at the end of these podcasts with three quick questions. But before I do that, is there anything you, else you wanted to share uh, with our listeners? Anything on your heart? Anything left unsaid? Oh my goodness. What a, I thank you so much for that. Um, well, I, it's, it's always good to go and find things out. I would say if you have a question about mental health or about conflict states or about what can be done or what is being done, go and find out because there are many things that are being done and uh, lots of uh, uh, lots of good, uh, impressive work happening every single day. Uh, I would say go and find out. Thanks. Qu quick question number one. Anything you've read recently that has changed you or the way you see the world? I just finished... Uh, I just finished... A book about writing by Stephen King. Oh, right. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I myself have written. I've written and co-written and edited um, half a dozen books, but I'd never read his book about writing. And um, I don't live too far from his, uh, far enough, but uh, uh, from his home in Maine. And um, my mother, who died last year, was a very big Stephen King fan. Now, I read, she took us to the library for years. I re remember coming back with loads of books. My mother had all of his books on a shelf. I read all of his books because she had them. So, But after she died, I became, uh, I, we decided to go spend some time up in Maine and uh, toured his, his, his city and his home. And I had a, a very different appreciation for him after my mother's death. And he had this writing book, which I'd never read. I don't know if my mother ever read it. It's the one book she didn't have. And I read it and, oh, it was, it, it was very important for me because um, it's, first of all, it's a great book. It's a great book. I mean, he's so prolific, but the book about writing is great. And it was a way to connect to my mother that I didn't, uh, I totally didn't expect. And uh, that was, you know, it's not what I expected to answer when you asked that question, but that's the one that's most <laughs> recently changed me. In the last few months. Thanks. Second quick one is any ritual or habit or hack that has improved your life? <laughs> I was going to say like cardiovascular activity. I used to, now <laughs> I'm doing, I'm doing like a, I do like a, a class, a studio class a few times a week in the morning, but I've been a runner for many years and through the hardest work and missions uh, running like uh, like the ex something about the extreme uh, like you know I've never run, I'm not a marathon or anything like that but but running um, uh, and pushing my body uh, at least an hour a day if I can uh, is has been critical like to sustain my stability uh, through just and just day to day just keeping me like solid and stable so exercise I guess but for me it's cardio. <laughs> And last one is any place that has special significance. Um, Paris. Paris. <laughs> Paris. <laughs> we just, we, we just, uh, uh, yes. Um, 
I've been to Paris as a French speaker and I've been to Paris as a non-French speaker. <laughs> I've been to Paris when I didn't know anyone, know anyone there. And I've been to Paris where I've had like dear friends uh, living there for years. I've been to Paris as an unmarried person and as a, I've spent my honeymoon there. Um, I'll, uh, um, I've been to Paris. I mean, yeah, there, uh, Paris uh, is, uh, is my favorite city. And um, we, I just came back from a trip there over a uh, holiday about six weeks ago, or pardon me, about two, um, three weeks ago. And um, that's a, uh, I've traveled since the pandemic, but that's my first like uh, leisure travel non-work travel and reconnecting with uh, all those different versions of me <laughs> <laughs> and also then of course e you know eating the love great food and walking no matter how cold it is and drinking you know, <laughs> wine and just hanging out that's a very special you know what I've you know, been to a lot of places but Paris pulls it all together <laughs> for me so okay. that's my answer thank you so much Laurie for that I've really enjoyed our conversation Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate all the questions and the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at the Thank you.